This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Santa Monica, California issues its first blizzard warning ever. Freaky waves of extreme heat and cold flow across North America. Australia issued fresh heat wave warnings, hit with the worst heat in four years. South Australians will feel the heat this week as the Bureau of Meteorology predicts the hottest temperatures in four years to sweep across the state. Let's bring in Nine Adelaide presenter Tom Wren. Tom, how hot is it going to get? Scorching Brook, it was 35 yesterday, 35 again today. It's going to get up to 38 on Wednesday and then 39 on Thursday. But it's not just the temperatures during the day, but really uncomfortable nights. But you don't hear about the eight major heat waves sweeping across the south of South America. Coupled with two years of extreme drought and failing farms, major food exporters like Argentina and Brazil have less for a global market already stressed by war. Argentina hit 100% inflation and could go bankrupt again. Even at night in Buenos Aires, it is too hot to sleep. But is it global warming? Yes and no. Later in the program, you hear a full report from extraordinary South American scientist Paola Aras Gomez. Then, if we have time, Greta Thunberg gets the last word reading from her new work, The Climate Book. But first, we have my report on key science showing atmospheric rivers are reaching the Arctic, damaging ice formation in the winter. This pushes extreme weather further south into the mid-latitudes where so many of us live. Radio EcoShock. You know those atmospheric rivers that drown California? In astounding science, Ping Fei Zhang and colleagues find these airborne torrents are reaching all the way to the Arctic Sea. They weaken Arctic sea ice in the winter, and that changes weather all over the northern hemisphere. Why, and how does it work? There is more. Atmospheric rivers are increasing as the world warms, and their impacts add again more warming. Arctic ice in winter has become an important place. In 2007, September sea ice was reduced by tens of thousands of square miles or kilometers. Sea ice went even lower in 2012. Millions of people are worried about the low state of summer sea ice. But now we find winter ice is not forming as before. The sea ice drops rapidly when an atmospheric river arrives, leaving a damaged ice pack, much weaker as it goes into the next summer's melt. This paper verifies that is happening. We also learned about the strange phenomenons of teleconnection. Scientists, sometimes aided by deep learning computers, can wade through vast amounts of collected data and discover patterns that seem connected even though they are half a world away. For example, satellites might show that when the winter sea ice is weaker, rainfall in central China changes. I have more new science from Chinese scientists about that case. In a teleconnection, scientists compare the two events on graphs. They go up and down together. This is teleconnection. It does not by itself say that one phenomenon directly causes the other. It only says they happen together. Many cases of teleconnection have been discovered, and it shows how complex and interrelated this planetary system is. This new paper by Zhang and colleagues also points to possibilities of abrupt climate change. 
As co-author L. Ruby Lung said in a press release, quote, We often think that Arctic sea ice decline is a gradual process due to gradual forcings like global warming. This study is important in that it finds that sea ice decline is due to episodic extreme weather events, atmospheric rivers, end quote. Episodic extreme weather events, remember those words? Instead of the gradual warming and gradual rising seas projected by older science and repeated in the media, a growing chorus of established scientists are returning to the idea of abrupt climate change. A new regime of floods in one region or a drought in another could pop up in a year or two and never go back to what it was. There are multiple cases from the deep past showing these irreversible events happen. It rewrites ideas of preparedness and certainly the risks. In 2014, Obama's science advisor John Holdren called for an end to climate change. Dr. Holdren said we should use the words climate disruption instead. This past winter was certainly that for weather in the United States, as it was in the U.K. a few years ago. Storm after storm arrived with strangely mild weather in between. Nothing was stable. There could be a hidden twist. One of these weather episodes might kick in large changes in circulation in the atmosphere and ocean. We might arrive in a new hotter state filled with difficult surprises. The late and great American scientist Stephen Schneider gave a presentation in 2002. It was titled, Abrupt Nonlinear Climate Change, Irreversibility, and Surprise. So we begin with the paper, More Frequent Atmospheric Rivers Slow the Seasonal Recovery of Arctic Sea Ice. All in all, I spoke with the lead author, Peng-Fei Zhang. He is Assistant Research Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University. Peng-Fei specializes in connections between the upper atmosphere and the weather down here. He led a number of articles on the Arctic, sea ice, and extreme weather in various parts of the world. Then I began the adventure of reading the new paper in depth, along with some of the science that it builds on, plus a few more articles and press releases and videos and down the rabbit hole. All those links appear in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Help yourself. There is so much in this new research paper. Let's take it in order. The atmospheric rivers, then the winter sea ice, followed by what all this means for billions of humans north of the equator. Zhang et al. say atmospheric rivers are, quote, long, narrow, transient corridors of strong horizontal moisture transport, typically accompanied by a low-level jet ahead of an extratropical cyclone, end quote. Those are the cyclones, also called hurricanes or typhoons, that strike heavily populated countries, often causing large-scale death and damages. Not all hurricanes have atmospheric rivers with them, but Zhang told me about 82% of atmospheric rivers are associated with an extratropical storm. With atmospheric rivers, storms and record-breaking rainfall generally come together. So atmospheric rivers are bands of water-laden air up in the sky. They generally form as the sun's heat strikes the ocean around the equator. The hotter air holds more moisture, about 7% more, for each degree of average global temperature rise we humans add. 
Some of these sky rivers flow in a kind of belt around the world, watering South America, the jungles of Africa, and Asia. The new paper says, quote, In recent decades, more atmospheric rivers have been observed in Greenland and West Antarctica, coinciding with the poleward shift of ARs in a warming climate. This study reports an increased atmospheric river frequency over the sea ice-covered Eurasian Arctic, end quote. The band of moisture up there can divide and flow northward. An arm of heavy winds and water arrive in California, for example, as the extreme flooding event of December 2022. Some go to Canada's west coast and drown folks there. Atmospheric rivers, or AR for short, can even reach the poles, hitting both Antarctica and the Arctic. This group of scientists chose a relatively well-studied part of the Arctic Ocean. They label it ABK, and it's the ocean north of both Norway and Russia. It includes the Barents Sea and the Kara Sea, the B and the K. Why do scientists look there? Peng Fai cited three reasons. Quote, the sea ice variability and change, or decline, is the largest in the Arctic, indicating its sensitivity to climate change. Two, from the view of oceanography, the Barents and Kara Seas are close to the North Atlantic, and it is one of the major pathways for the North Atlantic warm water into the Arctic Ocean. Three, from the view of atmospheric science and climate science, similarly, it is easier for the atmospheric weather system, like atmospheric rivers, which develop and are active over the ocean, to come into the Arctic through the northwest coast of Europe. There is no counterpart in the North Pacific since there is only a narrow channel, the Bering Strait, so it is harder for the ocean currents to reach the Arctic through the Bering Strait. And that's the end of a quote from correspondence with Dr. Zhang. Peng Fai Zhang adds one more reason to study the Barents Kara region, but it's not easy to understand. Essentially, this region is, quote, close to the climatological ridge of large-scale circulation, end quote. I read it, atmospheric rivers can create a state in phase with the existing climate patterns. That harmony can, quote, influence the atmospheric circulation, even the stratospheric circulation, end quote. He cites one of his previous papers, published in Science Advances in 2018. The title is, A Stratospheric Pathway Linking a Colder Siberia to Barents Kara Sea Ice Loss. So what's happening here is a steady stream of measurements from the satellites over the past 40 years demonstrates the number of atmospheric rivers is increasing as the world warms. It is not new for them to reach the poles, but the increase of the ones arriving is new and has been newly discovered with impacts on the ice world known technically as the cryosphere. The paper by Zhang and friends leads to three main changes— when the ARs reach Antarctica, they lead to more snow accumulation in East Antarctica, but, quote, intense moisture and heat that are rapidly transported by atmospheric rivers can exert a strong melting effect on the cryosphere, exemplified by ice sheet melt in Greenland and West Antarctica, Polinias in the Weddell Sea, and I'll define that in a minute, and finally, the 2016-2017 record-low Arctic winter sea ice growth, end quote from Zhang. According to Wikipedia, a Polina, 
is an open area of water surrounded by sea ice. It is now used as a geographical term for an area of unfrozen seawater within otherwise contiguous pack ice or fast ice, end quote, from Wikipedia. The Weddell Sea that Jang mentioned is a very large part of the Southern Ocean off the coast of Antarctica in the direction of South America. It is claimed by Argentina, Chile, and Britain. The Weddell Sea has large ice shelves at its fringes, but some of them have already disappeared by the year 2010. Ice sheet melt in Greenland and West Antarctica is quite important to sea level rise. You all know about that. And it may temper the speed of glaciers moving toward the sea there. But this paper puts the focus on Arctic winter sea ice. How do atmospheric rivers lead to weaker sea ice and more warming? Several key drivers appear, not just one. The first is, quote, enhanced downward long-wave radiation. These are the long waves traveling all the way from the sun, arriving at the surface, whether land or sea. Long-wave radiation is difficult and expensive to measure, so weather stations leave them out. But that is what warms the world, as I understand it. According to the new paper, quote, The physical processes relevant to atmospheric rivers induced ice melt or impeded ice growth include 1. Enhanced downward long-wave radiation due to the greenhouse effect on water vapor, the cloud radiative effect, and condensational heating release. 3. The insulating capacity of snow and 4. Melt energy carried by rainfall, end quote, from the new paper by Pengfei Zhang and colleagues. Of course, we expect rain will help melt ice in the Arctic. Zhang says this heat is a weak force from rainfall, but we still do not know enough about that energy. Here is another surprise. Scientists expected low summer sea ice would lead to faster ice formation in the winter, even during warming but that expectation has been overwhelmed by the episodic storms of atmospheric rivers. They find, quote, frequent ARs can prevent the sea ice from growing to the extent allowed by the freezing temperature, end quote. Perhaps because most atmospheric rivers are accompanied by strong storms, these scientists predict the Arctic will become more stormy as we heat the world. Storms break up sea ice faster, and stormy weather could affect the dreams of international shippers who want to use the Arctic as a shortcut between Asia and Europe. The obvious impact of winter sea ice weakened by repeated atmospheric rivers is simple. The frigid dark winter at the poles is the time when sea ice solidifies. Arctic ice used to cover pretty much the whole Arctic Sea with piles of thick ice, some of it years old. A portion of that gradually melted away each summer. But now, in the age of fossil fuels, that regime is breaking down. If the winter sea ice is thinner and more fragile, there is less resistance to the spring sun and increasing heat. Summer sea ice also suffers. That slashes reflection of solar rays back to space, a former cooling mechanism. Instead, it allows the hot sun to reach the ocean surface where the heat is stored and eventually circulates around the world. Increasing atmospheric rivers in the Arctic are partly caused by global warming, and they lead to still more warming themselves. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. 
In the story of rivers of air arriving from the tropics, there are other impacts, but they are difficult to describe. Changes in the winter Arctic can drive big weather changes much further south, like in Europe, the USA, or China. Twice in recent years, we had the professional meteorologist and climate scientist Judah Cohen on Radio Ecoshock. He explained those connections. Although the process of cause and effect is still under study, Cohen says we know enough to use the state of snow cover over Siberia and the Arctic Sea to predict large-scale weather patterns over the following year. Other scientists, like Jennifer Francis of Rutgers, have also long said the state of Arctic sea ice can negatively affect weather further south, including the U.S. Not all scientists agree. U.K. scientists James Screen and Russell Blackport published three papers saying the impact of Arctic sea ice on climate further south was not significant. But more and more science shows there is a link between the state of Arctic ice and weather further south. Our new paper by Zhang and colleagues is further confirmation. According to an article on weather whiplash published by NASA, quote, In a study published in Science in 2021, Cohen and colleagues linked declines in Arctic sea ice in the Barents and Kara Sea and increases in snowfall in Siberia, both of which are linked to climate change, with an increase in polar vortex disruptions and cold spells in the mid-latitudes. Cohen added, The stretching of the polar vortex we saw in December 2022 definitely fits that pattern. End quote. In a 2020 paper, Peng-Fai Zhang led a paper investigating North American cold events following sudden stratospheric warming in the presence of low Barents Kara Sea sea ice. Well, that's amazing because scientists have just predicted, and it is happening, that a sudden stratospheric warming is developing over the Arctic right now. It's quite powerful, but we don't know for sure whether that will bring a late cold spell to New England and Northern Europe, or whether it will not. The science is just not in for sure. But we do know the stratospheric warming event is happening right now. Arctic sea ice and weather in China, a case study. Let's take the case of China. We have fresh research from Chinese scientists published in April 2022. The title is Possible Lagged Impact of the Arctic Sea Ice in Barents Kara Seas on June Precipitation in Eastern China. This is surely teleconnection. The matching pattern stretches not just over a massive continent, from the Norwegian north to China, but over time as well, arriving months to half a year later. The authors of that lag paper, led by Hugh D. Yang, say, quote, It is revealed that the state of sea ice concentration in Barents Kara Seas from November to December is closely related to regional precipitation in June, which is the most evident across the Yangtze and Huai rivers and South China, end quote. The two states, one in the Arctic, the other in eastern China, seem to move in concert. How is that possible? We do not know yet for sure. The authors offer some suggestions, though. For example, quote, The sea ice concentration usually has a long memory, which exerts a long-lasting and lagged impact. Although the sea ice anomaly amplitude gradually weakens from early winter to early summer, 
End quote. Then it gets even more hairy and technical. Apparently, an increase in Barents Karasi ice usually corresponds to a stronger stratospheric polar vortex in midwinter. Well, that's interesting. This changes atmospheric wave action, but when the winds surrounding the Arctic recover and tighten up towards the pole, that triggers a response in the June weather system over parts of China. Amazing. Finally, we return to the dark threat of episodic climate change, as shown in the new paper by Zhang and colleagues. Most past science and public perception measured and predicted global warming as a gradual slope. The precept is, nature moves regularly and slowly. For example, they said the world is warming about 0.1 degrees C per decade. Charts show a gradual incline. But other scientists, including Tim Linton and Stephen Schneider, question this linear view. What if warming and all its life-changing impacts does not ramp up in an orderly fashion, but jumps up from time to time and never goes back? Could we encounter a sudden warming, say one degree C within a year or two, or a surprising sea level rise washing into ports and agricultural deltas and predicted by no one? Previously, scientists considered this unlikely because of the massive buffering capacity of the ocean. But now the seas are hotter too. Their ability to keep absorbing our carbon dioxide pollution at the same rate is called into question by a large variety of factors, even including the response of plankton. For years, models predicted sea level rise as a ramp up on a knowable curve. But the science of past climates shows otherwise. Here is one example you heard on Radio Ecoshock a few years ago. Dr. Kash Patel of Rice University in Texas told us about a series of coral plateaus off the coast in the Gulf of Mexico. It works like this. Coral animals depend on cohabitation with tiny plants. They require a careful balance of nutrients coming from the depths and light coming from above. Too far moving up or down, and the coral fails. They build their reefs at the sweet spot depth and can adjust to gradual changes in sea level rise over long periods of time. But if we see levels go up precipitously, a steep ramp up, then the partners of the coral polyps lose the light. We could say the coral drowns. The reef dies out and construction stops. That leaves a dead reef plateau. Finally, new coral arrives, perhaps ages later, and begins at the best depth and light conditions, until another rapid sea level rise. There are several of these plateaus in the Gulf of Mexico. They testify to several events of abrupt sea level rise. It happens. This new 2023 paper we've been talking about, led by Zhang, finds winter sea ice decline in the Arctic due to episodic extreme weather events, namely atmospheric rivers. It is more proof that natural systems do not operate within the limits of our convenience or imagination. Climate disruption may indeed be non-linear. In a brand new paper, Professors Tim Linton, John Schellenhuber, Johann Rockstrom, and more again explore the possibility that known feedback processes could collide. The result could be a jump in warming, a change in normal weather, or sudden impacts that would destabilize the world. 
This episodic view of climate change is gaining more voices and proof in facts. It should send tingles down your spine. All those dreams of a gradual ramp towards net zero are dangerous. They insist the future will be like the past, just pushed a little bit further every year. Nature itself promises no such convenient time to adapt. Larger and unexpected impacts are possible. We may have already stimulated abrupt climate change. Or are we just approaching that doom? Can we moderate it? Either way, humans need to stop bringing fossil fuels out of the ground immediately. We need emergency action because climate change is not our friend. Again, we learn with new science. Time is short to avoid climate disaster on a global scale. Expect the unexpected. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for joining this exploration into the way things work on a small planet lost in space. We began with the paper, More Frequent Atmospheric Rivers Slow the Seasonal Recovery of Arctic Sea Ice, and went on from there. Find lots of links to check it out for yourself in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at Ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Food prices are higher again. Only a few places grow most of the world's agricultural exports. One is Ukraine. You know the trouble there. We find another in the Great Plains of South America, including the famous Pampas. Wheat and soy crops in Argentina have been cut in half, and they are major exporters. This is the third year of drought in a region known for increasing rains. The eight consecutive heat waves have been brutal. Obviously, global warming has struck again. Or has it? The New York Times said no. But what do the scientists say? We are joined by Dr. Paola Arias-Gomez, a climate scientist and professor at the Environmental School at the University of Antioquia. She is the lead author in the new study, Vulnerability and High Temperatures Exacerbate Impacts of Ongoing Drought in Central South America. Arias Gomez was the first Colombian woman to be selected as an author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, working on the latest sixth assessment report. She has published at least 100 papers, all peer-reviewed. From Medellin, Colombia, Paola Arias Gomez, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, how are you? Thanks for the invitation. It's good to have you here. So most of us are pretty shaky on geography. What do you include in southeastern South America? Southeastern South America is a region in uh, this continent that includes North and Central Argentina. It also includes Uruguay, Southern Brazil, Southern Paraguay. It is a region that is pretty important for agriculture in South America. Uh, it has a lot of harvesting soy and wheat, particularly. And also, it includes important cities like uh, Buenos Aires and Montevideo. So it is a region highly populated with a pretty uh, big importance on uh, South American agriculture. Well, actually, I would add they are important for global agriculture. People import animal feed and meat from Argentina, for example, all over the world. So summer is wrapping up on the Great Plains of the Andes. How is it going for people in farms there this year? The last couple of years have been very difficult for people in southeastern South America, in particular because the region has been experiencing a drought. 
And also we have been observing a simultaneous heat waves during some parts of the, of the summer. So it has created like a lot of impacts. For instance, national agriculture and exports, high soy prices and wildfires have been occurring uh, during these two years. Just to give you a number, the annual harvest in wheat and soy have been reduced by half during the last two years, with deficits in exports like about 20-25%. Or for instance, in Uruguay, you have more than 70,000 people that have lack of access to potable water. So you can really see that this is something that is affecting people in the region. Economy, as you mentioned, also world economy, you can see the international price uh, market of soy has been affected also with. And the thing is that the most vulnerable people is the one that is most affected in this case in the region. Scientists tend to study the heat separately from the drought, and we will talk more about that. But in an earlier report on the record December 2022 heat waves in southeastern South America, and you did this for world weather attribution as well, you found warming made that heat 60 times more likely to happen. How can scientists know that? So what we do when we do this type of attribution studies is that we analyze observational data of the particular phenomenon that we are interested in. And we try to identify observer trends and look how different models, as much models as we can simulate those trends. And also try to see, for instance, the probability of the phenomenon to occur under different warming scenarios. So in that case, we can really uh, capture if the trend or the type of phenomenon that we are observing is something that will be more likely to be observed under a particular global warming threshold. So for instance, for this particular heat wave that you are mentioning, that we found that this heat wave is 60 times more likely to happen due to climate change. We also found that this heat wave had a return period of one in 20 years. And that a heat wave with a similar probability of occurrence will be about one for four degrees Celsius less hot without human influence. So this type of studies really help to understand how probable is to have something similar to this when you have a human-induced climate change or when you don't have it. With that link to heat known, why did you and a group of international scientists decide to question the role of climate change in the big drought there? So that is something that is a, a signature, for instance, of climate change. When we have under warming con conditions, then we see like an increasing compound risk that particularly droughts and heat waves are one of the most severe because you can have pretty, pretty big impacts. So when we are studying the heat waves, we ask, okay, what is the connection with this drought in, in Southeastern South America? Uh, at the beginning, we were thinking that maybe we would like to wait to have more information and more studies on the on the drought but we decided to go first with the heat wave and then go uh, with the with the drought study and that's what we did a 2021 study led by Ariano Varulo Clark found summer rainfall in southeastern South America has increased by 27% in the period 1902 to 2019 over that time, some crops more than doubled because of dependable rain, and the models predict it will get wetter still with more global warming. Why did that long trend of increasing rainfall break into this three-year drought? 
So what you are mentioning is something that is actually very good assessed with high confidence by the IPCC most recent report. So this in South America is a region that is getting weather during the summer, and in particular also with heavy precipitation events occurring with more frequency. However, there is something that we have to consider, and that is uh, the fact that the only thing that affects climate is not climate change. We also have, for instance, variability. Climate variability is pretty important, and in particular, the occurrence of La Nina is something that can induce reductions of precipitation. And that is actually something that is happening right now. We are having a three La Nina events, consecutive events. And for instance, in the case of Argentina, Paraguay, or this region where we are observing this drought, we are observing a, a, a deficit in rainfall. So that's why it's pretty important to consider that there is not only, the only player is not climate change. We also have other players. And in this case, the different modes of variability in the climate system are also playing a role. The ozone hole over Antarctica. How does the ozone hole so far away affect farming in Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay? So that is pretty a pretty important point. Ozone is a gas that is in the atmosphere and most of the ozone, like about 90% of the atmospheric ozone, is in the stratosphere. This gas is very important because it is able to absorb ultraviolet radiation, and that is why you have a warmer stratosphere. So when you have a depletion of ozone, for instance, the ozone uh, hole, then you can have a less warmer temperatures. So you have a like cooler stratosphere temperatures and that creates changes in the atmospheric circulation. Particularly, there is something that is called the mid-latitude jet stream and this jet stream moves, shifts forward toward the South Pole. And that is something that could allow, for instance, to have more cyclonic uh, circulation in the, in the region. And this increases precipitation in the region. For the case of this region in South, uh, Southeastern South America, for instance, something that has been, uh, let's say, helping to have increases in precipitation during summer, that is the trend that we were talking about, is that colder conditions could uh, induce changes in the atmosphere that uh, enhance uprising, rising motion in, in the region. For the current drought, we know that we are having uh, three consecutive La Nina events, and that has played a pretty important role. In 2017, I interviewed Norwegian scientist Douglas Scheel, and he and two Russian scientists offered a novel view of how great forests might make their own rain, or at least encourage it. Is deforestation a factor in the recent drought in southeast South America? The forests being thought as uh, rain producers, and not only rain, but also water vapor producers, uh, is, is something that is, that is real. In particular, the Amazon forest is a water vapor uh, a factory for South America. For the region of interest, uh, like uh, Southeastern South America, about 20% of the water vapor that becomes rain in Southeastern South America comes from the Amazon. Uh, we have performed different studies understanding what happens when we have deforestation in the Amazon, what happens with transport of moisture toward northern South America, the region where I live, where is Colombia located. And we find that we can see reductions of atmospheric moisture transport. We haven't seen that uh, because we haven't uh, done the analysis for Southeastern South America, but I would think that this plays a role. In particular, 2020, 
was a year with the highest deforestation rates in the last decade in the Brazilian Amazon. And when you have more deforestation, then you have less evapotranspiration. You also have less moisture recycling in the region, and that could induce reductions of atmospheric uh, moisture that is exported towards southeastern South America. But that is something that we really need to take more into consideration. That study I mentioned by Ariana Varulo-Clark found, quote, gross discrepancies between predictions by even the latest, biggest climate models and what actually happens with rainfall in the southern part of South America. Why are the models unable to capture it? Models still have a hard time simulating precipitation. Precipitation is a pretty complex process in, in, the, in nature in general, in the climate system, and these numerical models that we use to represent climate are not able to solve all the different processes that are involved in precipitation. Models have a better time, for instance, simulating atmospheric circulation, how the winds flow in the atmosphere. But for them, it's pretty difficult to, for instance, solve correctly the formation of clouds, for instance, or the microphysics of clouds. Also, the land-atmosphere interactions that occur in regions that have pretty different land uses. So that is something that for models is difficult to capture. Also, variability. We were talking, for instance, about El Niño, La Niña, or about the Atlantic decadal variability or the Pacific variability. That is something that is uh, uh, still have uh, difficulties in these different models. So that's why it's very difficult to reproduce correctly precipitation because precipitation is the result of the interplay between different factors. This trout is really hitting hard. Argentine exports of food and animal food have plummeted just as the country hits 100% inflation and possible bankruptcy. People all over the world buy South American meat and soy products, including animal feed, these are hard times for Argentine farmers and the country. Dr. Arias Gomez, how could science, better science, help them? I think one thing that will be important is to have more assertive communication. If we have more assertive communication, trying to communicate all these different factors that are involved is something that could be helpful. Also, uh, by science policy interaction. It's not only the fact of having better science, of having more publications, or having this uh, diffusion of the different results. It's also how these different uh, scientific research can help the policymakers. So I think there is a necessity to strengthen these science policy interactions. In the case of attribution studies, I found that that is very, very helpful because it can also provide hints for adaptation. Not only tell us, okay, what is the cause of this particular phenomenon, but also what can we do, for instance, in terms of adaptation or even in terms of mitigation when we know, for instance, that the, the cause is something like climate change that we could mitigate. And also it provides hints for forecasting. I think that is one of the main things how science could help, because if we understand better this type of dynamics, then we probably could understand what are the different warnings that we have previous to a drought, for instance, to a drought event that we could foresee. And in that case, it will be a good forecasting for the, for the drought. And then we can take measures for adaptation and mitigation of the drought. 
We should mention electricity for this whole part of the continent comes primarily from hydro dams. Have you heard of shortages of electricity due to this long-lasting drought? Yes, that is something that has been uh, documented in, in Argentina in particular. One thing is, of course, you have less water in the dams because uh, you have a deficit rainfall. But also uh, you have a lot of like the, a higher demand of, of energy use. So in that case, you can have more people using energy or demanding energy at a certain time. And you also have less water. So, yes, that is something that has been uh, documented during this recent drought in, in, in the region. On February 16th, 2023, the New York Times wrote about your new study with this headline. Scientists wondered if warming caused Argentina's drought. The answer, no. Is that a fair assessment of your results? I think that's something that is pretty interesting when attributing in particular droughts and this drought in, in southeastern South America is that we need to acknowledge that there is an interplay of different drivers and different factors that are occurring at the same time. In particular, our attribution study shows that the rainfall deficits that have been occurring in the region during the last years are not explained by climate change. But the increases of temperature are something that are really well attributed to climate change. And these increases in extreme temperatures in particular, is something that can exacerbate the impacts, but also the vulnerability to the drought. So that is something that we need to take into consideration. Sometimes uh, we think in black and white, so it is climate change or it is climate variability, but never think that there is a lot of gray shades that we need to consider. And it's because these factors and many other factors, for instance, land use, are acting at the same time. Sometimes they are exacerbating the impacts of each other. Sometimes they even can offset the, the different impacts. So we need to consider always climate variability when we are trying to understand climate change, and in particular, when we are attributing climate change. Yes, from the UK, your co-author Otto Friedrich told The Times, this attribution study shows, quote, not every bad thing that is happening now is happening because of climate change, end quote. How does it help to know what is and is not global warming? I think that is very related to my previous answer, that we need to consider this interplays in future climate. In particular, climate variability is something that dominates particular precipitation changes during the uh, next, in the near term, let's say. But in the longer term, then we start having the signal of, of a human-induced climate change. So it is important to understand that these different things that we are observing in reality, for instance, the intensification of the water cycle or the increases of uh, heat waves in a particular region, is something that connects human activity, but also connects this variability that is occurring in the, in the climate. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. From Colombia, scientist Paula Arias Gomez with Alex Smith. Let's talk about that heat for a minute. The National Meteorological Service of Argentina reported this Southern Hemisphere summer was the hottest November to January since 1961, and the heat got worse this February, breaking records in 27 cities. The capital, Buenos Aires, was cooking, even at night. Can we say this heat is likely due to global warming? Yes, 
That is something that actually the sixth assessment report of the IPCC has shown with high confidence that in Southeast and South America, we are experiencing an increase in the frequency and intensity of hot extremes, in particular heat waves. And our previous study in world weather attribution actually attributed this uh, late uh, 2022 heat wave to human-induced climate change. Paolo, from the scientist's point of view, can you talk about how extreme heat interacts with the drought? How do these two work together? So when you have a, a drought that is occurring, uh, you can have different types of droughts. So you can have, for instance, droughts that are uh, due to rainfall deficit. So that is what we call meteorological drought. You can also have a drought where this mo- a, a precipitation deficit also is observed in soil moisture. So you have drier soils and that is called agricultural and ecological droughts. And sometimes these droughts are so severe that you even see a drier rivers, for instance, and that is called a hydrological drought. So when you have these drier conditions occurring during a drought, and you are also observing extreme temperatures and higher temperatures, then it increases the stress, the thermal stress, not only for crops, for instance, but also for humans. And that is something, for instance, that is a pretty important risk on their future conditions because then it will represent a, a, a higher stress, for instance, for farmers, as we are observing now in, in Argentina. So that's why you need to consider not only like the independent events like a drought or a particular heat waste, but when both of them are occurring at the same time, you really need to consider that they are exacerbating each other. And as I mentioned before, this uh, increase of compound events, when you have simultaneous events, for instance, heat waves and, and droughts, is something that is more likely to occur when the temperatures continue increasing. And we presume the heat will only get worse in South America. Could that cancel the model predictions for increasing rainfall for that region? And and why would rainfall increase? Okay, so that, that is when you, you have to also consider that when you are observing a, an increasing trend in precipitation, it doesn't mean that it's increasing every year. You can have variability in that trend. And that's why I again mentioned the importance of climate variability. So in this case, it is true. It it has been very well detected that since the 1950s, this region is experiencing an increasing trend in precipitation. And models show that this trend uh, will continue under further global warming. However, you can have, for instance, a La Nina event occurring, like is the case right now, and that can produce reductions of precipitation, in this case, for two consecutive years, that is the, the length of this drought at this moment. So that's why you have to consider that is not something that is monotonously increasing all the time, that you can have variability even within that trend. Do you expect the Great Plains of southeastern South America will return to good rains and good farming? And when? Can we know? The the La Nina event is something that has been pretty important, a pretty important player reducing precipitation in the region. And when you see the El Niño Southern Oscillation, that is the name that this big phenomenon is called, ENSO, because of the acronyms. Uh, So the ENSO forecast suggests that we are in the transition toward a neutral phase of ENSO. So it means that it will be expected to have an initial recovery in rainfall. 
Although it is pretty important to mention that ENSO, which is something that happens in the Pacific Ocean and that depends on the interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere, is pretty difficult to forecast at this moment of the year, at this time of the year. It is called the spring barrier for forecast in the Pacific. And it's because then you have like a decoupling between the atmosphere and the ocean. So it is pretty difficult to say at this moment in February, March, April, if we are going to have El Niño or La Niña in December this year. But we know the models are showing a like consistent behavior toward neutral phase of ENSO. And that would mean like a recovery, a partial recovery of precipitation. And how about you, Paola? Is your home country of Colombia experiencing changes because of global warming? Yes. Something that this report of the IPCC shows is that every region in the world is affected by climate change. It's affected in pretty different manners, and that is something that's why it's so difficult, because we cannot compare, for instance, southeastern South America with northwestern South America, where Colombia is located. In particularly in, in my region, in northeastern South, uh, northwestern South America, we are, of course, observing sea level rise. We have a, a, an increase in, in sea level in the Caribbean and the Pacific coast of Colombia. We also are observing glacier retreat. We have some of the last uh, tropical glaciers in the world, and they are projected to disappear in the coming decades. Something that we are also observing is the intensification of a uh, water cycle. In some regions, we are seeing increases in heavy precipitation. In other regions, for instance, like the Orinoco, which is like more savanna-like environment, we are observing drier, drier conditions. And all these conditions, uh, in particular for the mountain regions in Colombia, I, I don't know if you are aware, but in Colombia, the Andes uh, mountains split into three branches. So we are having like a pretty, pretty complex topography. And because of that topography, we are observing, for instance, an increase in landslides, floods, uh, debris flows. And that is associated with climate change, but also with land use, because we have a lot of urbanization, a lot of agriculture and cattle that is causing deforestation and many other aspects. And over that, you have to also consider that we are also affected by La Niña, for instance, in the case of the two most recent years. And actually, in our region, it's happening the opposite to what is happening in Argentina or in Uruguay. We are experiencing uh, more precipitation than usual. And during these uh, last weeks, we have having a recovery. But uh, during January, for instance, we had pretty bad uh, floods and landslides across the country. So you have pretty, a pretty different uh, landscape, let's say a pretty different picture in Northwestern South America in terms of the impacts of climate change. From the Environmental School at the University of Antioquia in Medellin, Colombia, we've been speaking with Professor Paola Aria Gomez. Find links to her new study on the great drought in the south of South America in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Paola, thank you so much for helping our listeners understand this. Thanks a lot, Alice. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Here's a quick reading from the famous activist Greta Thunberg from her new work, The Climate Book. The climate and ecological crisis is the greatest threat that humanity has ever faced. It will no doubt be the issue that will define and shape our future everyday life like no other. This is painfully clear. 
In the last few years, the way we see and talk about this crisis has started to shift. But since we have wasted so many decades ignoring and downplaying this escalating emergency, our societies are still in a state of denial. This is, after all, the age of communication, where what you say can easily outweigh what you do. That is how we have ended up with such a great number of major fossil fuel producing and high emitting nations calling themselves climate leaders, despite not having any credible climate mitigation policies in place. This is the age of the great greenwashing machine. There are no black and white issues in life, no categorical answers. Everything is a subject for endless debate and compromise. This is one of the core principles of our current society. A society which, when it comes to sustainability, has a lot to answer for. Because that core principle is wrong. There are some issues that are black and white. There are indeed planetary and societal boundaries that must not be crossed. For instance, we think our societies can be a little bit more or a little bit less sustainable. But in the long run, you cannot be a little bit sustainable. Either you are sustainable or you are unsustainable. It is like walking on thin ice. Either it carries your weight or it does not. Either you make it to the shore or you fall into the deep, dark, cold waters. And if that should happen to us, there will not be any nearby planet coming to our rescue. We are completely on our own. It is my genuine belief that the only way we will be able to avoid the worst consequences of this emerging existential crisis is if we create a critical mass of people who demand the changes required. For that to happen, we need to rapidly spread awareness, because the general public still lacks much of the basic knowledge that is necessary to understand the dire situation we are in. My wish is to be part of the effort to change that. I have decided to use my platform to create a book based on the current best available science. A book that covers the climate, ecological and sustainability crisis holistically. Because the climate crisis is, of course, only a symptom of a much larger sustainability crisis. My hope is that this book might be some kind of go-to source for understanding these different closely interconnected crises. In 2021, I invited a great number of leading scientists and experts and activists, authors and storytellers to contribute with their individual expertise. This book is the result of their work, a comprehensive collection of facts, stories, graphs and photographs showing some of the different phases of the sustainability crisis with a clear focus on climate and ecology. It covers everything from melting ice shelves to economics, from fast fashion to the loss of species, from pandemics to vanishing islands, from deforestation to the loss of fertile soils, from water shortages to indigenous sovereignty, from future food production to carbon budgets, and it lays bare the actions of those responsible and the failures of those who should have already shared this information with the citizens of the world. There is still time for us to avoid the worst outcomes. There is still hope, but not if we continue as we are today. To solve this problem, we first need to understand it, and to understand the fact that the problem itself is by definition a series of interconnected problems. We need to lay out the facts and tell it like it is. Science is a tool, and we all need to learn how to use it. We also need to answer some fundamental questions, 
Like, what is it exactly that we want to solve in the first place? What is our goal? Is it to lower emissions or to be able to go on living as we are today? Is our goal to safeguard present and future living conditions or is it to maintain a high-consumption way of life? Is there such a thing as green growth? And can we have eternal economic growth on a finite planet? Right now, many of us are in need of hope. But what is hope? And hope for whom? Hope for those of us who have created the problem or for those who are already suffering its consequences? And can our desire to deliver this hope get in the way of taking action and therefore risk doing more harm than good? The richest 1% of the world's population are responsible for more than twice as much carbon pollution as the people who make up the poorest half of humanity. Perhaps if you are one of the 19 million US citizens or the 4 million citizens of China who belong to that top 1%, along with everyone else who has a net worth of $1,055,337 or more, then hope is perhaps not what you need the most, at least not from an objective perspective. Of course, we hear, some progress is being made. Some nations and regions report quite astonishing reductions in CO2 emissions, or at least in the years since the world first started negotiating frameworks for how we manage our statistics. But how do all those reductions hold up once we include our total emissions, rather than carefully managed territorial statistics? In other words, all those emissions that we so successfully negotiated out of these figures. For instance, outsourcing factories to distant parts of the world and negotiating emissions from international aviation and shipping out of our statistics. Which means that we not only manufacture our products by using cheap labour and exploiting people, we also erase the associated emissions, emissions that have, in reality, increased. Is that progress? That was Greta Thunberg reading from the climate book just out from Penguin. We are out of time. I'm Alex Smith. Tune in again next week. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. 